Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from Chico Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. But if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week I share a devotional inspired by the name of one of the cross images and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. The photo accompanying this essay is the mercy. This image was shot very low to the ground. If I recall, I was lying in the grass, sniper style, to get the angle that I did. In the composition, the ball of fire is setting past the horizon line, which happens to be located at the bottom of the left side of the foot of the cross. And that big setting sun gave the overall color to the sky a unique and very stunning yellow glow. The image sings loudly the peaceful feeling of enveloping yellow. The inspiration for the name is found in Lamentation 3.23. Great is God's faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. I recall a story I heard about a Greek monk who was very well known by his introduction to those he met. Instead of saying hello, he would ask, Tell me, dear brother, are we being saved today? But why? Why today? Wasn't yesterday good enough to cover today? Why do we need fresh mercies every day? Why did Jesus say to take up your cross and die to yourself daily? Why did Paul say to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Fear and trembling? Those are a pair of intense words. Especially fear. Fear of what? Fear of who? King Solomon said, in a few different ways, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does this mean? My definition is that wisdom is the right or correct application of knowledge. Selah. 
And did not the Apostle Paul infer that once you accept the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, you are in? One and done, yes? My answer is that it depends, like a lot of things in life. And I'd respond, yes and no. First of all, yes, like the Passover story. Once forgiven, we are saved from the second death as we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. This sanctification does separate us from being part of the world, but being born again does not make us perfect creatures. No, it does not make us a Christ, but we are a follower of Christ, and we emulate Jesus, his nature, and his commands, avoiding our Adamic nature each day and striving to be in Christ. And even though we are not perfect, we can always strive to move from good to better each day. And if you have not discovered it already, entering through the narrow gate is not easy. We fail sometimes more days than other days. And sometimes we fall in a deeper way than on other days. But at the end of the day, we need God's mercy again. We tried. We picked up the cross and we tried to carry it, but fell under the weight of our own sins. So just as we find new ways to fall out of God's favor, we seek the Lord for his mercy. None of us deserve God's grace, and we should always be grateful when we receive it. And we should always hunger for it and never take it for granted. Like a salesperson, always striving to bring in new sales to make quota and enough commission to provide for his or her family. In that mindset, I like saying a prayer that goes back to the earliest of the early church and one that is used daily throughout Eastern Orthodoxy. It is called the Jesus Prayer, and it is very simple, but very profound. It goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If we break it down, we see that each word has a depth of meaning. But that is not the point of today's devotion. Suffice it to say there are many songs directly inspired by this prayer and this mindset, and other songs surrounding it are songs based in Latin, like the Kyrie song that speaks of a cry for mercy. There are versions of prayers like the Glory to God song, which in part goes like this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to his people of good will. Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world. Receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. There are so many other related songs, like the Jesus, I Trust in You song, which goes, in part, 
Jesus, I trust in you and in divine mercy. Jesus, I trust in you, flowing from your heart of love, from the blood and the water flowing from your pure side, fully divine and ever human. Jesus, I trust in you. For the sake of your sorrowful passion, have mercy on the whole world. Or another song is an alternate version of the Lamb of God song, which goes, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Receive our prayer. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. I contend that we in Christendom, in the Protestant West, would do well to be a bit more humble, like our Eastern brothers and sisters, especially in the East. This is the first time you are hearing of these types of songs. Well, that is my point. I have a dear friend, Deacon Dave, here in our local little Orthodox church. He introduced me to this AFM app, which plays Orthodox music. And I was blown away by how the majority of the songs were about seeking God's mercy. And yes, I visited his little missionary church, and most all of the beautiful and stirring worship songs are predominantly about seeking mercy. The Bible tells us that we are to keep our minds stayed on Christ, which for me means not having the TV on in the background, and especially not the TV news or talk radio, as these will undermine my peace of mind. No. For me, I like to listen to songs, especially the ones I just mentioned, throughout the day. Many, as songs like these remind us, it prompts us to always be seeking God's mercy. They say, whoever they are, that one bad apple could ruin a whole barrel of apples. To me, taking God's mercy for granted can be like that bad apple, slowly spoiling the entire barrel full of apples. Paul said in Romans 6.1, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Well, I say that is a dangerous mountainside path to embark down. You know, a path through an ultra-steep slope, one that means a misstep could have you tumbling down the mountain. Depending on God, or keeping your dependence on God, instead of our own abilities, is like guardrails, keeping us on the path. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way. He has carved and laid the path and set the rails. A good prayer in this vein is, God, walk with me on the road to righteousness. For your namesake. And God is faithful. Even in the darkest times. God's mercy will shine forth anew at the dawn. Just as illustrated in the yellow ball of sunrise. In the image for this devotional. And it does relate to this week's essay. My encouragement inspired by the 
mercy image is that no matter how dark the nights of life may seem, draw near to the cross. When I first set out to create a devotional on the name of this image, the good thief came to mind, the one that asked Jesus to take him to paradise. And I heard a preacher say one time that the good thief was the first Christian, the first one saved by Christ. But I am not so sure, as Jesus had not yet went down and returned from Lucifer's realm with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Moreover, I read in the Gospels, specifically in Matthew 9, 6, where Jesus was very clear that he had the power to forgive sins, which means there were others forgiven by Jesus during his ministry. But still, the good thief is a special story for us to learn a lot from. The most obvious takeaway for me is that the good thief chose to own up to his mistake, confessing his sins, and he asked to dwell with Jesus in paradise. Is this not what most of us say if someone asks, what must I do to be saved? The first is a choice. Think about this. God loves us so much that he gave us the free will to love him or not. After we choose, then we own up to and then confess our sins, asking for forgiveness. Most importantly, we follow Christ, asking him to be in us and for us to be in Christ. And even though the thief destined for hell that day found a detour from the path towards eternal damnation, some might say he got away from the clutches of Satan. And for a moment, the thought came to me about Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. He certainly got out of the mortal state of death. The Good Friday accounts found in Matthew 27:53, where multiple people reported seeing the graves and tombs open and saints that were resurrected. But that is not what this devotional title is about for me. It is not just about getting away from eternal death and darkness of hell, nor a similar account way out or soon to come in the future, in the end times, around that time of the rapture, and that many graves will be opened up and those who died in Christ will be raised from the dead. But no, it is not what this devotional is about either. This devotional is built upon an innocent observation and the conclusion of a Christian with childlike faith. Meaning, we hear logical constructs like, if this, then that. We see this and we expect that to happen. I remember when I was in the fourth grade, I was excited that I had found a fossil near the school grounds. I was ecstatic to show my friends what I had found, which to me was a snake after the curse of the Garden of Eden. When God added the snake's legs, or took away the snake's legs, I guess you would say. So my excitement was that I had found this Garden of Eden creature before God had taken away his legs. And a few of my schoolmates looked confused at me for a moment, not sure how to respond to my excitement of finding a pre-cursed serpent. Till one, one kid looked at me and said, Dude, that is a dead lizard. Yeah, it was a bit embarrassing, as they kept reminding me of it throughout the day and actually for a few days. And for me as an adult, I reflect on simple truths like, if I do something like praying, then something of significance will happen. How? For example, let me 
share about my thoughts about the church. Not just the church as the body of Christ, but each individual congregation. Meaning I have fallen into a pattern of every time I see a church, whether big or small, as I drive past it, I make the sign of the cross and I ask God to bless that church. Just a quick prayer, but I really mean it. Now some might say, my quick little prayer is inconsequential. But I believe that in the eternal plane where angels dwell, that it does make a difference. That the prayer is not just the drop of water in a bucket of water, but that it is just like the account of Jesus teaching the multitude where he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. Likewise, God can bless and multiply even the littlest of prayers. As an example, a movie came to mind. It was a Tinkerbell movie. A pirate fairy movie, I believe. In it, Zarina is a dust fairy, as opposed to a water, garden, or animal fairy. Dust fairies are part of a tribe or clan that you get born into based on your inherent talent. Dust fairies manage the pixie dust production that all the fairies use to fly, among other things. The pixie dust is yellow, just like the image color of this week's devotional. However, they have a base element called the blue dust, and a little bit, and I mean even the tiniest of blue dust, magnifies and have a multiplying effect on the regular yellow dust. The common phrase in the movie they used was that blue dust could make the yellow dust go from a trickle to a roar. I know that is an obscure reference, but if you saw the movie, it encapsulates how I envision prayer in the dimensions where angels live and work. That our prayers can multiply the abilities of angels, especially when praying for a church or standing in the gap through interceding for loved ones or asking God for mercy. This routine makes my driving around a little more interesting as I'm always looking for a church to pray for as I drive down the street. And it has turned out to be a really cool thing from time to time, not often, but once in a while I meet a pastor from a certain congregation and they tell me where their church that they shepherd is at. And I get to say, oh, I know that church. I've prayed for your church many times. After looking at me funny, I explain what I do and they think that it is a really good thing. I have a few people reporting to me that they now too Pray for churches as they pass by. You should consider it as well. Some people are concerned that the signs of Christian persecution is building up again. Over the generations, persecution in one country or another rise up and fade. It seems that persecution is about to be fully released, not just in America, but globally this time. If so, churches can use all the prayer they can get a prayer of blessing, and a prayer of protection. Remember, God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way to his grace. He has carved the path and set the rails. And I remember a story from a writer, Phil Calloway, who mentioned in one of his essays that he had traveled through many churches in the country, and most all of them have a cross somewhere, but that there was this church in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, that really impacted him. A simple wooden 10-foot cross, but in this old church, the cross is bolted 
right in the middle of the altar area of the stage. According to Phil, its placement really perplexes a lot of people as it seemed out of place. Preachers have to walk around it when sharing a sermon. Any worship performances are choreographed around it. Any theatrical performances have to be staged and performed around it. And the question of why there persisted. Why right there in the center? Well, Phil postulated that the answer is hidden in the question. We as Christians should keep the cross in the center of our awareness as we go through the daily routines of our life. And if we plan our life around the cross, making the cross the central part of the core of who we are, it will help keep our minds stayed on Christ. Remembering that day that Jesus died, the day that we refer to as Good Friday, it was the most catastrophic day for Christ's disciples, yet it was the most wonderful day for all mankind, a day of liberation, a spiritual independence day of sorts. If you remember, I shared a poem recently about Martin Luther in which he says, the cross of Christ runs through the whole of Scripture. I take it to mean that from the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, everything about the human condition was leading to the moment on Good Friday when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for the entire human race. Of course, his followers would not have any idea of this until they heard that the tomb was empty and until he appeared to them and uttered a new greeting, Peace be with you. And that makes all the difference. Is it hard to believe that Jesus died after being tortured and crucified by the Romans? No. The real point behind the question of what the cross means to me is manifested in the resurrection event that we now call Easter morning. He got out. Jesus got out. Not just out of the freshly hewn tomb, but Jesus got out of the realms that his soul visited. But some of us are curious, where did Jesus get out of? Was it just about getting out of a hole carved out of a huge rock? Let me ask you this. Was not Jesus mortal and eternal, all man and all God? Was he not 100% human and 100% divine? And since the Bible tells us that Jesus was found to be completely free of sin, that he was sinless. So, when Jesus died, did he not go to heaven? No. Why not? Did he visit the place called paradise where the good thief asked to go? Maybe, because Jesus told the good thief that they would be in paradise together. But the Bible says that Jesus went to the realm of Satan. Wait, what? Are you saying Jesus went to hell? Yes. He was sent there or went there like James Bond on a secret spy mission or maybe Rambo on a rescue mission. Either way, the Bible says that that is where he went, to the turf of the fallen angel, to the little kingdom with the lowest of lowercase k's, a kingdom that Lucifer carved out for himself and with the third of the angels that he convinced to follow him. The Bible says that Jesus, after the sacrifice of himself on the cross, obtained the authority to take back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And when he came back to life and the resurrection, the way Jesus got out is a whole topic I mean, unto itself. But since we are talking about how Jesus got out, I have to touch on it. Some scientists who have studied the Shroud of Turin, which for those of you who may not know, is purported to be the burial cloth used to wrap 
the body of Jesus. It is a long cloth. It's laid out is more than twice as long as his body. They laid the back of the body on the cloth, and they would fold the other part around the head and across the front of his body. The shroud, as they used to call burial cloths, is the only shroud found that has an image that can best be described as a negative. For those of you who are not familiar with traditional film-based photography, before digital, cameras used gelatin film to capture an image. However, when it does, it imprints the image on the film in a what is called a negative, which at this state or this stage is a reverse of what was captured, meaning where there were blacks, there are whites on the negative. Where there were whites on the scene, it'd be black in the negative. And of course, many shadations for areas that fall within the zones from darker to lighter. Now, to create a print, one would go into a dark room, place a particular negative in what is called an enlarger, and shoot light through the negative onto a specially sensitive paper, making a positive, or what we consider to be called a print, a finished photographic print, or a photo or a picture. And when you consider this process, as we return to the shroud, again, the only one of its kind with an image of a man, an image on both sides in the form of a negative, this means two things. And I will share them in reverse order of magnitude and importance. One is that when scientists have made a positive of the shroud, we have an actual photograph of Jesus. It is really cool. You can look it up online, and if you can see the positive print, you'll see what Jesus looked like, what Jesus Christ really looked like. But what is amazing is what would have caused a negative to be imprinted on a burial cloth. Scientists who have studied this have concluded that it had to be made in the same process of this negative creation process like in a camera, meaning when I shoot an image, I release the shutter which opens the aperture and light stream ends and hits the film, which means that the only explanation possible within physics is that there was an immense amount of energy, maybe not just an abundance of visible light, but possibly an intense mix of light, which is both a particle and a wave from a broad spectrum of electromagnetics light frequencies and energy. And this wide spectrum of energy emanated from the inside outward onto the cloth when Jesus actually resurrected. Just incredible. What we are talking about is paranormal, cosmic, ultra-galactic type power that raised Jesus from the dead. And, to reiterate, meaning really think of the implications of what I mean when I say Jesus got out with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Which means Jesus has the power and the dimensional authority to get you out of any situation you go through in this thing called life. And even in a worst case scenario like dying, Jesus can get you out of a path of darkness and damnation into the eternal presence with his Father, all the saints, and all the loved ones that also accepted the sacrifice that Jesus willingly made. So, just as Jesus began to use a new greeting with the disciples in his post-resurrection body, let me say to you, peace be with you. And if you listening today have not accepted the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, both on the cross and in hell, retrieving the keys that can get you out of the grave into an eternal life in heaven, 
then I suggest you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to heal the painful parts of your mind and soul. Ask Jesus to come into your heart today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program heard every week here on Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed for this devotion's image, the Mercy, along with other versepirations, and check out Rob Holt Inspires on Instagram. And if you'd like to learn about the Cross products or hear other Cross podcasts, then log on to RobbieHolt.com. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com. <laughs>